everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling. And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative, storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. Hey everyone, it's Brandon with another Turbo. I wanted to talk today about liberation. Liberation in this context is uh, a term coined by the SCCM some years ago now called ICU liberation, and it is a catch-all term for a, a general concept or package of interventions which is intended to take a patient who is sick in the ICU and move them towards functional recovery. And this is different from all the things we do that are meant to save a patient's life. And yet in many cases, which take the patient uh, deeper into unwellness and away from normal function. In other words, patients come to the ICU extremely sick. We do many things to try to keep them from dying. We put in tubes and lines and devices. We start many medications. We put them on the ventilator. We park them in bed. And hopefully those things work and they survive. But you then have to ask the question of what comes next. In many cases, when people have not given this much thought, what has come next is the patient just languishes in the ICU in this same state of being deeply medicalized for a very long time. You know, ideally patients would get sick quickly we would respond and resuscitate them quickly. Certainly you need to do that. You can't under-treat them, and then they might not survive. But then they also stabilize and improve quickly, and at the same pace, we withdraw and normalize all the weird stuff we did to them. Everything we do to you in the ICU, by and large, is bad for you. It just may be necessary. In other words, not doing it would be worse. But once it's no longer necessary, we need to get rid of it Otherwise, we are promoting further illness, and the interventions we're providing are tending to maintain the patient in their state of perhaps not critical illness anymore, but some people are calling it a persistent or chronic critical illness, or at least a very blunted and slowed arc of recovery. Now, what does this look like? And, you know, gosh, unless you've practiced your whole career in really excellent units that have a great culture of this, you've probably seen what this looks like. It's the patient who came in with their sepsis, their respiratory failure, whatever. They didn't die, but it's many days later, weeks later maybe, and they're still kind of hovering around your ICU. Maybe they haven't really gotten off the ventilator, and if you ask why, they just they're just kind of not bouncing back. You give them spontaneous breathing trials and they, uh, they just kind of don't breathe a lot or they get to kipnic and, and seem restless. Maybe you have got them off the ventilator, but they're just kind of blah. They're not doing a great deal. Um, they're lying around in bed. They're very, very weak. Or maybe they did get out of your ICU. And if you followed them or had the ability to follow these people on the regular floors or even after they leave the hospital you would find a lot of the same problems, which just tend to be outside our radar because we don't see them. But still, you'd see patients who weeks, months later, even years later, are still having dramatic, persistent sequela of their critical illness. 
patients who have left the hospital, left rehab, gone home even, and yet they're still physically debilitated, can't walk down the block, can't tie their own shoes or do some of their ADLs. They can't hold down the same skilled job they used to have. They're cognitively not normal. They don't have the, their short-term memory back. They're emotionally labile, exhibiting symptoms of things like depression and PTSD. These things are all really common. And the question you have to ask is, are there things we're doing in the ICU that promote all of this? And more specifically, are there modifiable things? In other words, certainly a lot of what we're talking about is due to them being very, very sick. And we can't prevent that. Obviously, if we could have prevented their illness, we would have. But given that they're going to be sick, the best we can do is save their life, and then some of these sequelae will occur. However, maybe some of it is modifiable. And if we just treated them differently in the ICU, their arc of recovery would be very different. So this is the, the package of interventions that they're calling ICU liberation, and it was codified by the SCCM into a a bundle which uh, they were putting initialisms on, ABC measures, and they kept adding letters, D, E, F, and it, nobody wanted to list them anymore, so now we just say A through F. Uh, it's kind of a tortured mnemonic, and frankly, some of the, the components, while important, are probably not as important as others. So I'm just going to focus on three today, which I think are really at the heart of all this and are closely related to everything else. And those three things are sedation, mobility, and delirium. So what are these things and why are they important? Let's start with sedation because it's probably the most important. Many patients come to the ICU sick, and particularly if they get put on the ventilator, they end up being sedated. Now, in the old days, and the old days are still here for many of us, this is just what you do. And it was because we assumed that being on the ventilator with a breathing tube in your throat is just a lousy way to live. Nobody wants to be conscious for that, just like if you didn't want to be awake during surgery. So we knock you out. We give you sedatives, and then many patients would have no memory of this time. And that seems like the more humane thing to do. It, even many healthcare providers, if you ask them, They'd be like, hey, look, if I come here and I'm sick, knock me out. I don't want to know anything that's going on because it's lousy. The problem, well, there's two problems with that. First of all, one very clear concrete problem is that the more sedation we give patients, the worse they do. This is clear. There is a dose-response relationship between the quantity of sedation patients receive in the ICU and their outcomes. Outcomes like their length of stay in the ICU and in the hospital, uh, their time on the ventilator. These things might make sense to you because the more sedated you are, the harder it is to have recovery. In other words, uh, can you get off the ventilator if you're too sedated to breathe? No. Can you uh, get out of the hospital if you can barely walk or move? Perhaps not, and so on. Uh, but it also, in some studies, may worsen mortality. It certainly seems to worsen delirium which we'll talk about more, but it, there's a clear relationship there that sedation drives delirium. So overall, sedation is just not good. It prevents your body from working the way that it ought to. So the question we then have to ask is, do patients need sedation, and if so, how much? And perhaps the answer is no, they don't need sedation in general. So looking at the canonical case of the patient on a ventilator, is it even symptomatically or subjectively better to be sedated? The answer to that even may be no. 
Many of these patients, if you follow up with them later, after they're extubated and you interview them maybe at home, they are haunted by their experiences in the ICU. They do remember them and they weigh upon them. But the worst of the memories is not actually anything that happened to them. It's the things that didn't happen. It's the false memories driven by delirium. Delirium is this confused state people experience when they're critically ill, and it often comes with hallucinations and delusions, which can be very vivid, visual and auditory hallucinations and these beliefs of persecution. And that's what they remember. And perhaps now they realize that it was false, but at the time it, it felt real, and that's the emotional impact that it has on them. So in that sense, we can't prevent that with sedation because even though the patient may be lying there motionless, they are internally experiencing these uh, false perceptions of their reality. And we're not improving that with sedation. We're actually driving it. Now, is it a lot of fun to be lying there with a tube in your throat, just awake and unsedated? No, probably not. It's probably boring. Hopefully it's not painful. We're not suggesting that you don't prevent and treat pain. You should, in all cases, give patients whatever analgesia they need to be comfortable. The question is just, do we also then give them sedation? And there have been studies looking at the idea of no sedation, analgesia only, uh, and that can be done and actually can have excellent outcomes, granted in select settings. You have to have enough staffing to supervise the patients and so on. But if you can do it, again, clearly, the best amount of sedation is none. And if you have some, the best amount is as little as possible. I'm talking in general. Of course, there are specific exceptions. The patient in status epilepticus needs to have sedation on board. If you are going to sedate, what do you do? Again, start with analgesia. Analgesia first. Uh, pain alone can be a driver of delirium and is just inhumane. So you give them whatever they need, perhaps some opioids, until their pain is controlled. And this can be determined by asking them or by some kind of a nonverbal pain scale. It should probably not be driven by using your analgesics as sedatives. In other words, if you're giving them opioids because they're restless or agitated, unless you think that's driven by pain, and you can, that's a reasonable guess to make. You can try, or again, you can try to assess it. But if they're clearly not in pain and you're just trying to sedate them using something like fentanyl or hydromorphone or morphine, I think you're probably going about it wrong. These are not good sedative drugs, opioids. They, they do have a sedative effect, but it's a side effect, and you have to you give them a great deal of these drugs in order to achieve it, which is going to have a lot of adverse effects. Just like treating pain with sedatives like propofol, dexmedetomidine, benzos is also not very effective because you'd have to give them a ton of it to kind of mask their pain. And in fact, they still may be experiencing the pain on a low level. So try to view these processes separately, analgesia and sedation, even though there is a small amount of overlap. And then with those two tracks, you start with analgesia until pain is controlled, then assess the need for sedation and give them just enough. This should probably be determined by, again, some kind of a scale uh, so that you're sedating them just until they are calm and awake, not agitated, but not sedated. That's your goal. Most places are using a scale for this. I think the RAS scale has become the most common, although there are others, but you need some kind of a target. Now, so that means if you walk around and you find a patient who is knocked out, maybe you can 
wake them up briefly when they fall back asleep. Maybe you can't wake them up at all. That is an over-sedated patient if you are driving it. Now, if they're on no sedation, it's just who they are. If it's just driven by delirium or a neuro injury or something else, then of course you can't do anything else. But if they're lying there on two sedative drips and a high dose uh, opioid, then it's probably your fault. And your response should be to titrate those down. That raises the question of should we be using drips at all for these things, for your opioids or your sedatives? And in an ideal world, perhaps not. Perhaps you should use push doses, intermittent boluses of these drugs, preferentially. Now, in theory, you can give the same amount of drug this way. If you put someone on a 100 micrograms an hour of fentanyl as a drip, or you push them 100 micrograms every hour as a bolus, that would be the same amount of drug. And in theory, for a persistent pain, like the discomfort of the ET tube, a drip would make sense because it's steady and perhaps occasional breakthrough boluses. The problem is that drips inevitably do end up giving more drug in practice because patients experience pain, there's some intermittent bump, they turn the drip up and then people don't turn it down. It's much easier to escalate than to de-escalate just because of human nature. People respond to what they see, that usually means more drug, and then you have to actively look at the patient and think, oh, they no longer need that much, and people are never as quick to do that. So you just end up accumulating a ton of drug on drips. So if you can get by with pushes, that's all the better. Now that does mean a little more work for the staff, because they have to assess the patient, get the drug, push it, and so on. But even pretty hefty doses by bolus will generally end up accumulating less of it. So for your analgesics, perhaps fentanyl or maybe that hydromorphone. Uh, for sedatives, you're pretty much limited to antipsychotics like haloperidol um, or benzos. And benzos are probably not a great choice in general, uh, but if it's going to be just rare occasional doses, it's probably okay. So as far as drug choice here, again, I want you to view all sedatives as bad, and ideally you wouldn't need them. Um, and within that category, some are better and some are worse. So benzos are probably worse than others. If you consider propofol as kind of your neutral standard, benzos clearly cause more delirium and are associated with things like longer vent times than other drugs. So we really try to move away from them for routine use. Again, I'm not talking about things like status or alcohol withdrawal. Whereas something like dexmedetomidine seems like it's a little better a little less deliriogenic than other agents, and in some studies may actually shorten the duration of delirium, which is one of the very, 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 very few drugs we have that's even had a signal that it can kind of treat delirium versus just masking it or treating the symptoms. So if you're going to put someone on a drip, uh, maybe something like dexmedetomidine is one of the more benign ways to go, at least as far as these objectives of liberation. Okay. So that is sedation. As little as possible, treat analgesia first and then separately address your sedation and get it off as quickly as you can. Great. Let's talk about mobility. Mobility is just the idea that patients should be moving around physically. And of course, that's what patients are meant to do, just as you or I are. And yet when they come to the ICU, and especially again on the ventilator, they tend to just lay in bed. Now, in the old days, we would have thought this was because they were resting and you need to rest 
when you're very sick. And certainly if you're like actively in the process of dying, I'm not suggesting you should be doing cartwheels. Your metabolic demand is high enough as it is. But that period of really kind of your peak illness is pretty short for most patients. And some patients are never that sick. So very quickly, you could take a patient and get them physically moving around again. And this has great benefits. It certainly preserves their physical strength. These patients who walk into the hospital and then three weeks later they leave and they can't even sit up in bed because they spent the entire time lying motionless, atrophying their skeletal muscles as well as their respiratory muscles. I mean, that process begins right away when you're not using those things. So activity helps maintain that strength and gets these patients uh, stronger, faster, breathing on their own better, uh, ambulating sooner and more likely to go, let's say, home than to rehab or to a lower level rehab for a shorter amount of time. But it also has other effects that are less obvious. You need to move to keep your lungs healthy. Lungs are meant to be upright, not supine in bed, and in a physically active body. Moving around mobilizes the secretions in your lungs. It helps prevent atelectasis. It's really hard to get good pulmonary toileting when, again, you're just lying there passively in bed. You, know, you limit your peripheral edema by activating those, those muscle pumps to return venous and lymphatic tish, uh, fluid. You help uh, limit you know, those pressure ulcers we see in immobile patients. Uh, all kinds of things, including effects on the brain. It seems to improve or mitigate delirium when patients can be active. Again, people are not meant to be lying in one position in bed staring at a six-foot square of the wall for weeks on end, especially if they're imagining other things are going on during that time. So it seems like mobility is good. The data has been a little scattered on this, and we're still kind of pinning down exactly what makes the most sense to the most patients. But in general, the sooner you can get patients active, uh, not necessarily vigorously, but doing something, probably the better it is, and certainly the easier it is. The deeper they get into this pit of immobility, the harder it is to get them out of it. So the sooner you can get patients doing something, uh, the better. Now, this can be done by physical therapists, but in many places, there's just not enough staffing for the skilled therapy teams to have a very active role in early mobility in the ICU, unless you hire a dedicated team of them for your ICU, which of course costs money. Now, there have been some cost analyses that show you can actually save money by doing this because you may get patients out of the ICU or off the vent faster, which saves you money. Um, but sometimes it's hard to prove to people that they have to spend money to save money. Or you can have your nurses do it. A lot of this early mobility is not particularly skilled. It just has to be something. So if your nurses are trained and you have some kind of a, a protocol for a scaled mobility system for them to initiate when patients arrive, and it could just be a matter of, you know, you start with trying to sit them up at the edge of the bed, dangle their legs, hold their core upright. And then the next step if they can do that is maybe standing. And then if they can do that and perhaps march in place a little, maybe they can sit in a chair, and after that, it's just ambulating for increasing amounts of time. And then eventually you can have even a patient who's still pretty sick um, ambulating in the halls, on the ventilator with a breathing tube in, you know, with a lot of help. You know, the farther you get in this process, sometimes the more challenging it is. But again, something is better than nothing. And sometimes just the process of taking these kind of deeply sunk patients, getting them to work with you and, and sit up on the edge of the bed, it kind of changes their whole outlook. And I think changes our outlook on them because they start to look like people again. Now, this ties in closely with sedation because patients who are sedated cannot work with you for mobility. You can do some passive stuff and just move their extremities around, but the benefit of that is pretty limited. Patients really need to be using their muscles and ideally bearing weight to get a lot of this benefit. So it becomes kind of a litmus test. 
And it, it can be useful that way because you could say to have perhaps your nurses or your team, listen, I, I want this guy to be able to engage in mobility and maybe sit up or even stand today or tomorrow. What's in the way of that? Oh, he's too sedated. Well, so we need to lighten our sedation until you can do those things. The other side of this coin is delirium. Again, this confused state that we see as a prodrome of other illness. Um, and it tends to be associated with either hyperactivity because patients are, are agitated, probably because they're experiencing a very different reality. And while it looks to us like they're thrashing around for no reason, to them, they're fighting for their life because we've come in there to kill them or torture them or they're in hell or something like that. These things are completely real to them, and you can imagine how their responses are very appropriate in that context. Or they're hypoactive, and they're not really doing much physically, but they're still just as confused and just as withdrawn and don't have the attention to participate in much. So you can see how that would also limit mobility. So... Ideally, you have to just keep people out of this state because whether they're too sedated to be mobile or you lighten their sedation and they're just delirious, either way, they can't do much. So you just prevent it in the first place. You don't sedate them. You prevent the delirium to begin with and you mobilize them as soon as you can, which may also help mitigate and prevent some delirium. Now, delirium on its own is a weird beast. Well, it happens in other contexts. Delirium of critical illness is uh, something we see all the time. It's clearly bad. It worsens mortality as an independent risk factor. Someone who becomes delirious in the ICU is more likely to die. And yet there's not really a treatment for it. It's just a marker. It's like a lactate. <laughs> Brain failure, like you have a kidney failure or a heart failure. And again, it has these features of um, you know, delusions and inattentiveness, and it fluctuates. That's one of the hallmarks. It tends to wax and wane. So if someone seems better, then they seem worse. You ask what happened. You know, often nothing happened. It just varies over the course of the day. But the treatment is really just to withdraw the things that may be promoting or triggering it, which is things like sedation and being sick and being in bed and all these things. So the more you can get them back to normal, the better. Extubate them, get them off their drugs, get them out of the ICU, get them home. Don't be tempted to give them a treatment because there is none. Sedatives are not a treatment. They are only a treatment for the agitation that may come with it. And the only reason you would treat that is for safety. So if a patient is thrashing around, falling out of bed, punching people, then you have to keep you and your staff and the patient safe, so you have to sedate them, sure. But if they are not doing those things, then they don't need anything. And you shouldn't because sedation may promote more delirium. This is the loop you get into. They get agitated because of delirium, you sedate them, and then they stay delirious, and you end up on four sedative drugs, and they're here for like four weeks because they are so wildly delirious. Just try to avoid that loop, and if you're in it, try to dig your way out by lightning and trying to tolerate whatever they're doing. Now, if they're just hypoactive and not doing anything, they're equally confused, but then, of course, there's no reason to sedate them. No drug treats or prevents Delirium, again, there's maybe some signals with dexmedetomidine. Don't think that antipsychotics like your haloperidol, your olanzapine, your ketiapine are treating delirium, even though we use them to alter the kind of mental psychiatric milieu of psych patients with things like schizophrenia. That is not the effect they have on delirium. Their effect is only that of a sedative. Now, they may be a reasonable choice for a sedative, but again, don't think you're altering the disease process. So a hypoactive patient who doesn't need sedation, you should not give them any of these drugs because they don't need it.
Hyperactive patient who needs sedation, yes, that might be a reasonable choice if you're looking for a bolus dose drug uh, with the usual caveats such as do they have um, long QTs and so on. So you see how you can take a patient who is sick and put them into a state of either being delirious or sedated, but in an ideal world, we would avoid all of that. Don't have the sedation so you don't drive delirium or over sedation. You just take a patient who's sick, but that's what's going on. Perhaps you innovate them, but the only thing that's changed is that now they're on the ventilator. You haven't put them into some hypermedicalized state where they have to be deeply sedated and delirious and immobile and stuff. They can still do stuff. They can be awake, interact with you, perhaps even assist in their care, move around, suction themselves, sleep normally. All these patients who look like they're resting when they're sedated on the ventilator are not. If you do polysomnography, the majority or all of them usually have zero REM sleep because these sedatives do not promote sleep. They just promote sedation. So they can actually sleep if they're not sedated and that helps reduce delirium as well. And they can even move around. And then once they get better as far as their lungs or whatever their initial process was, then you take the tube out and then they're kind of back where they were. And you don't have all of this sequela of iatrogenesis that you have to pull back from. This is the general approach to this idea of liberation and this idea of trying to be passionate about these topics just as much as you are about the resuscitation. Because if you're super into you know, putting in the tubes and starting the pressors and doing all that, and then once the patient's not dying, you kind of lose interest and you're not nearly as aggressive about these other measures. And really, even at the same time, even when you are still resuscitating them, having a thought to these things and saying, yes, we have to save their life, but can we do it in a way that does not unnecessarily promote these other problems? If it's necessary, yes, sure, but not just doing it thoughtlessly, routinely. Oh, they're on the vent, we're going to put them on a propofol drip and a fentanyl drip. Okay, but do we have to? Did you even assess yet if they need anything for pain or sedation? Or it's just part of your order set, either literally or just in your head? That's how you have to start thinking about these things. And yes, it is hard. It's not complicated. It's just hard because a lot of this requires a little more effort on everyone's part than doing it the other way. Patients who are unconscious, lying in bed on the vent, uh, perhaps in their own mental worlds, but from our perspective, doing nothing are very easy to care for. But guess what? They also don't get better, at least not very quickly. So to have an approach to critical care that is uh, excited and zealous about these things is one that lets you take patients who are sick, heal them, and then actually return them to your end goal, which is a normal level of function as quickly and reliably as possible. Whereas when you only do the other thing, you end up with patients who have not died, but are really not, not really getting better either. And their goal, and hopefully yours, is not for them to be hanging around your ICU or the hospital or rehab or the medical system or even being at home with a very low level of function for a long, long time. The goal is to get them back to their lives. And you can help that by treating them correctly. Talk to you next time.